The Adventure Jogger, a podcast about trail and ultra running. Meet fascinating runners from the front, middle, and back of the pack, sharing inspiring and funny stories about life and running. Running should be fun, and so should running podcasts. I'm your host, Ryan Pluckelman, and this is The Adventure Jogger. Welcome to The Adventure Jogger, everybody. We're continuing our series of making sure that 2022 is your best year of running. We've covered various topics already, talking about nutrition. We've talked about making sure you have that great balance between all aspects of your life. But another important topic tonight, I I will say Jeff Stafford was going to join us um, for this episode of the podcast, but just the other day, he was online and an ad popped up on the website he was browsing that said, saucy seniors in your area. And so he clicked on it and it turned out there was. So he he's on a he's on a hot date tonight. Um, otherwise, he would be here on the Adventure Jogger. But on this episode, we are going to talk about avoiding injuries. Those things can ruin your entire year. You make plans for a great year. You sign up for races because we have to do that so far in advance. And then you get an injury and it all falls apart. To help us have our best year of running and to help us not get injured during that best year, he is the host of the incredible Run Smarter podcast. Check it out. Put it in your repertoire of weekly podcasts because it's worth it. He's a physiotherapist. Brody Sharp is once again on the Adventure Jogger. Welcome, Brody. Thanks for having me back on, Ryan. I'm excited to be here. and It's a, it's a topic that I'm very passionate about. Well, I think everybody is. When we all, no one like <laughs> wants to start the year. And go, man! I really hope I pull something. But it seems like yeah, as runners, sometimes we know what to do and we refuse to do it. And then other times we're just we're unaware of the stupid things that we do that lead us down the road to injury. So I know this is a broad topic, Brody. But where let, let's let's start here. What 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 is the biggest thing that we runners do wrong that that bring us down that road to injury we'll start there with the big ones yeah and there is some very common errors that people can make that contribute to their risk of injury but then there are some little nuances in there and some little topics that we might delve into as well however the number one thing that runners need to know is that Running related injuries are are what we call overuse injuries. Mm -hmm. And what we need to understand is that every muscle, ligament, tendon structure within our body has a certain capacity that it can tolerate before it starts breaking down rather than building up. Mm -hmm. And so it's important that we understand where your adaptation zone is for each of those components or for the entire body as a whole and make sure that our training stays within that adaptation zone and we train within that adaptation zone. And as you do get stronger, you uh, progress the challenges and make sure you keep up with that adaptation zone if you want to get stronger, faster and like help your performance. And so following on from that to reduce your risk of injuries, we want to avoid excessively surpassing the capacities of certain tissues and muscles and ligaments and tendons. So we want to avoid abrupt shifts in training, which is where a lot of runners go wrong. They're impatient, they're stubborn, they have a marathon they're wanting that's, you know, 
four weeks away and they're training for that. And so the classic examples are doing too much too soon, running too fast too soon. Something that's a little bit less common might be changing your terrain too abruptly, changing the quality of the shoes that you have too abruptly. All these um, components can be fine as long as they're done in a sensible manner and allow your body that time to adapt. But when it comes to an injury, less often is that the case where people just rush into things and they're very eager or stubborn and find themselves in trouble. Uh, Brody, this is an ultra marathon podcast. This is a trail and ultra runner focused podcast. There are no sensible people listening to this. <laughs> you can talk about, you know, the sensibly increasing your mileage and, and sensibly doing all these things, but this is going to be a hard sell for a lot of people. But I think what Brody has to say, everybody, can help us a little bit. Let's start with the too far. You know, I, I wonder, Brody, does that is that something that plagues newer runners more because their body's not adapted to distance? What I mean by that is your You've never been a runner before. You're new to the sport. You get in. You you find that half marathon fun, marathon fun, ultra marathon fun, and just piles one onto another. And so you're moving too far too fast. As opposed to someone that's maybe been in the sport for a while, takes some downtime and comes back. Those are two different athletes when it comes to approaching too far too soon someone is it true that if, if someone's been in the game for a long time like just say carl Meltzer, for example the greatest hundred mile runner um in, you know, in the united states he takes a couple months off because he wants to play water polo or something he can get back into the sport and increase his mileage much faster than someone who's who's doing it for the first time I totally agree the the degree that you can bounce back will be a lot quicker than someone who's starting from baseline or starting a cap to 5K. During your off-season or if you go away on holidays and you have a couple of weeks off, there might increase the risk if you just jump back into your um, training mileage that you did mm-hmm. prior having that break. However, I do agree that you can return back quicker and you can actually regain those tolerances and regain that adaptation zone Um quite quickly, but just people still make that jump a little bit too abruptly or their terrain is a little bit more, um, if we're talking about, say, the ultra trail community, they might have a, um, they might train on a new course, which still has hills. They're all always used to hills, but maybe the elevation is slightly different. Maybe descending down the hills creates a lot more impact on the body that they're used to. And there can be, it's very hard to, Um, quantify Mm -hmm. the loads when there's such a varying terrain right one thing i wanted i want to know brody we we we, all trainers will talk about something called muscle memory and we'll use that as our excuse like you know well i took six months off but i got muscle memory if i can just throw in a couple of 50 mile weeks i'll be ready to go for that that ultra in, in in six weeks is muscle memory like the tooth fairy, we, we believe it's real for a while. And when we find out later in life that it's just something we've made up. Well, uh, in my definition, I think muscle memory refers to like the coordination of movement patterns mm. and not too much about what you can actually tolerate. Like if I haven't played basketball for three years, but I'm pretty sure that if I, you know, start playing now that I'd still have, you know, some capabilities about the fine 
um, art of dribbling and shooting and landing and those sort of things, much to a runner, their coordination and running uphill, downhill, they'll have that muscle memory inbuilt. But that's not necessarily capacity. Yeah, the capacity may diminish as you're taking that time off, but the muscle memory or that neurological coordination, the muscle memory uh, will still be there. So what you're saying, Brody, is that when we take some time off, our muscles just just don't nap. And then after a couple <laughs> of hard weeks, they go like, oh, I'm back. I'm, I'm back where I was. I'm awake. I'm ready to go again. <laughs> yes, correct. But however, there are things you can do in your off season that preserves a lot of your fitness as well and preserves a lot of your fitness capacities. And so being, um, say, if you're unwell, if you have the flu for three weeks and you're bedridden for most of that, it's going to be a lot harder to bounce back. Whereas if you have three weeks off yeah, and to say you have three weeks on holidays where you're traveling, hiking, lugging, like a lot of your luggage and um, being relatively active, that return back to running is a completely different story and a lot more, a lot easier to transition as to someone who's bedridden for a long period of time. Um, I've heard a saying that, that was, it was um, running will help your biking but biking won't help your running. Is that baloney that runners say to each other to, to, so we don't have to see each other in, in spandex? Mm-hmm. Is there any truth to that? Uh, I don't know. I think there'd be some carryover between the two. Like both of them have good cardiovascular fitness. I do think there are some good carryover in the way of, say, if someone is injured, if you have a runner who has been injured, say three times in the last 12 months with different injuries or an injury keeps sparking back up. Um, Cycling can have its advantages in the way that you're still remaining fit Mm -hmm. and you're still getting some strength in your legs, but it's changing up the loads in your body because overload is doing the same thing over and over and over again until it becomes overloaded. But if you can substitute a fitness alternative that shifts the loads of the body or the demands of the body, then you're reducing your risk of an overloaded injury. So whether it has its comparables in terms of directly translating to running performance, um, maybe have some, maybe not a lot, but in terms of the injury reduction side of things can have its advantages. All right, let's go back a bit. We're we're, we're covering a lot here. I hope everybody's got, (laughs) here's the great thing. If you want to listen to this again, it just makes me look better. Because people are like, oh, man, look at that. Look at the huge numbers on the, the Brody Sharp episode of The Adventure Jogger. So, Brody, let's talk about too far. That's a, it's, it's a vague term, and I've heard, I've heard the number 10% thrown around a lot. Like, you don't increase your, we- increase your weekly mileage by 10%. Um, a lot of ultra runners look at that 10% and go, yeah, fuck that. I'm not a 10% <laughs> yeah. type of guy. Is there research and science behind that 10% number? Was that something just like Hal Higdon's like, I don't know, 10% and then everybody ran with it? What is a legitimate percentage of increase? Well, the ultra runners out there will be happy to know that it isn't backed by evidence. It is just a general guideline. And for most of these rules like the more conservative you want to be the safer it is yeah so if you have a very conservative general rule out there it's going to be safer than say 15 percent or 20 percent and so there's no evidence to back it up but uh the theory of it is if you take things extremely gradual and 
mileage itself, if you say increase your mileage by 10%, that doesn't mean a lot. It doesn't hold a lot of quality. Like how fast are you running? How much mm. are you recovering? Uh, what's the terrain? Like there's really no, it is just this super blanket statement that we often hear. But again, some ultra runners will be like, I can't do that. That's uh, I need to do more. Right. But then a new runner who's doing very low mileage, if they follow that 10% rule, they're increasing their mileage so slowly they can't possibly expect to see a lot of gains right. when they start off with the mileage so 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 low so the blanket statements there as a blanket statement or general guidelines and can suit some people if they are finding themselves constantly injured and every time they increase their mileage they just break down with a new injury mm-hmm. then they're probably the runner to say let's uh, have a look at some aspects of your running. Maybe let's look at your training volumes. Maybe let's have a look at your, if you are doing too much too soon. And if it isn't, then you can delve into all these other elements like recovery, yeah. intensity, and terrain. Okay. So I think Brody, and you probably see this a lot. I want to say congratulations. You've just opened uh, the Run Smarter Physiotherapy Clinic. Um, folks in in the States can't go there. Um, you're going you're gonna to have to book far in advance and get a plane ticket to Australia. But congratulations as, as your uh, business continues to grow, because I think you have a message a lot of people want to hear. And I know that as running gets more popular, a lot of times when, when people get injured and go to the doctor, they will hear quite often, running's bad for you. It's bad for your knees, so you provide a service only for the Aussies, sadly, but that is important to have somebody that's a runner to help people get back into the swing of things and can be a resource for for runners because we don't want to hear it's bad for our knees anymore. We're tired of doctors who got paid lots of money to just say it's bad for their knees um, to, to continue to do that, but let's talk about ultra runners as, as a whole and just runners in general, Brody. Um, not everybody follows a plan. Very few people do. And I would say the percentage of runners that actually have a coach that gives them workouts every single week and checks up on them is probably pretty small. I think if you're looking at probably the the vast percentage of runners, I would guess it's 1% of runners pay for a coach. So a lot of people, their week is maybe missing some workouts and missing some things that would help them not be injured because they're excited about running. And a lot of people are just kind of doing the the um, throw it against the wall and see what sticks approach with just, you know, they'll do, you know, same pace every day. Today I'll run this mileage, today I'll run that mileage. They don't really know. What is important, I think this is, we can move to this next area next. What is a healthy look or a healthy week of running look like to avoid injury? Like talking hard workouts, easy workouts, long runs, not mileage wise, but what does a general healthy week of running look like? Good. Um, I think we can also say that, yes, I do have uh, my brick and mortar clinic, but I also do online physio for, for runners all over the world. So oh, that good. might be useful for your listeners as all well. Right. So Brody can see it's just going to be, he might be a little sleepy <laughs> depending on the time shift, but look Brody <laughs> up, run smarter physiotherapy clinic. Yeah. Interesting to, interesting as well that like 60% of my caseload are people in the US. Really? So it's mainly based on, yeah, people who listen to the podcast, which a lot of the US people are really grabbing onto and loving it. That's awesome. That's well, congratulations, Brody. It's great to see your success and and uh, your, your yeah. business and your brand continuing to grow. But so we all know we can call Brody 
when we when we need them. <laughs> but what is that? What does that healthy week look like? Yeah. Well, I know you said we didn't want to talk about mileage specifically, but right. that when it comes to performance and balance and things, you do want to accumulate a very large volume safely. Takes time, takes patience, which a lot of runners don't have, but good data to show that the bigger your base of really low, easy mileage, the better you are, the more resilient you are, and the better performance outcomes you do have. But throughout an entire week, I would say you do have to have a little bit of a balance. We call this the intensity distribution yeah. balance. Yeah. And most people have heard of this 80-20 rule. Mm-hmm. And that being 80% of your weekly mileage should be spent at a very low intensity, leaving the, the remainder 20% spent in upper intensity efforts. So you have this really nice balance between the two. And a lot of people fail this particular thing, especially if they've had injury after injury mm-hmm. after injury, and you have a look at how they're running, they say, yeah, my running mileage is quite low. Um, and because I, I don't have time to do all this really easy mileage or time to run six days a week and accumulate you know, 30 miles, because I have such a little time available, I just go out and try and do my best performance every time. Yeah. And you have a look at that intensity distribution. It's way out of whack. It's 100%. Can, For so many people, it's 100%. Against the grain, what I would suggest is that change this mind shift away from, um, you know, just trying to put in your best effort every time or even during your easy runs, make sure it's easy because people get stuck in the way of sometimes they have a few days where they feel really good. Yeah. And they say, while my legs are fresh and while I'm actually feeling really good, let me, you know, up the effort a little bit, up yeah. the intensity. Yeah. But that's not the purpose of that particular session. And I have a few podcast episodes on this and what the the shift that really starts to be quite profound for runners is that once they actually dedicate themselves to that really low intensity, and if we're talking RPE out of 10, like if 10 is your maximum sprinting and one is walking, I usually side on about three, three or four RPE, um, which is, you know, you feel like you can do it for hours. If you yeah. run so slow that you feel like you can do it for hours, that's like a three for me mm-hmm. in terms of RPE. Mm-hmm. And once you start doing that, once you start executing on that, you can build up your mileage a lot safer. So you, your weekly mileage starts accumulating safely, but you also have fresher legs for your more intense sessions. So that if you have to do um, strides or strides are a bad example. If you have to do short interval stuff mm-hmm. that requires RPE in the eights and the nines, and you really have to perform a time trial or you have a 5k race or something that comes up, you have fresher legs and can um, perform better. Yeah. Whereas if someone is using their easy mileage at their RPE creeps up to like a five or a six, and it feels easy for them, but it's still borderline comfortable, uncomfortable, that kind of intensity distribution. They just don't have fresh enough legs to perform at those higher levels. And so people can really see that that shift. That's interesting, Brody. And I think a lot of people are probably at that six all the time. Just kind of living in that in that six world, you know, because they want to get that workout in. They want to they, they want to run with some friends that are maybe a little faster than they are. And I don't know if 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 when we say easy, I, I don't know if if runners really grasp. I know I don't. I don't grasp what easy is. 
And you were talking about a three on that. You know, one is walking, 10 is sprinting, three is easy. Let's just, if we can, put that in numbers for a second. If you're a person, you've got a runner who's who's six. You know, you talk about that six effort that we talk about. The, the week in and week out, that's their kind of six effort is like an eight and a half minute mile. What does an... What what does a three look like to a person like mm. that? What is the pace that would equate to three if their six is like an eight and a half? Good question. And when you're talking about like some runners just mold into a six and that's all they do. Yeah. We call that kind of like the, the gray zone of intensity. And it's kind of what I was talking about where, you know, if you – run a little bit too fast on your easy days that dictates how fast you can run on your faster days. And so you're not as fast on fast days because you're a little bit too fast on your easy days and you just mold into this gray zone of intensity, which a lot of runners find themselves. I live Um, in that gray zone. That that is like my home. My home is the gray zone, Brody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So if we're, I have had an episode on this. I recently, probably about two months ago, did an episode on RPE and, trying my best efforts to go through one to 10, how I qualify and quantify these particular numbers Yeah. Um, in my best efforts. Cause there's everyone experiences like their intensity differently. Right. Like someone has huge aerobic capacity and they might not feel out of breath when they're doing these harder efforts, but their legs just feel super heavy, right. but they've got their breath under control. But so right. everyone's slightly different, but I tried my best and what I liked to explain was, okay, one is walking. So no exertion, no effort. Right. Two is kind of fast walking or um, power walking or walking up a hill. Like mall um, walking. Do they have mall walkers in Australia? Elderly people like go to the mall. Oh, you're (laughs) Brody in the States. You need to come to the States. What some elderly people like to do is walk real fast at the mall and they'll move their hips from side <laughs> to side and they'll swing their arms and just kind of walk around the shopping malls. It's a phenomenon that you're really missing out on. Or you may have another term for it, like mall walking. It's a great demonstration. <laughs> so, You've been practicing that. Right, I have. So one is walking, two is mall walking. For, okay, for, yes. Yeah. And then, so then it takes over to the three. So the three is your jogging. That is like the easiest level that you can do. It's the easiest form of movement that's running that we can possibly think of. So running like technically is defined as you have to have this double flight time. So if you don't have this double flight time where there's this momentarily lapse in time where both your feet are out off the air, you're technically walking. So three is where you're heading into this jog or this run, technically a run, but it's the easiest thing you can possibly do. You kind of feel like you can do it for hours. And that's how I'd like to describe it. Other people can say, okay, very light sweat, light effort. You can just talk comfortably. Um, Yeah, just perceiving just really, really easy efforts. Okay, so it sounds like, because my wife is into running and we'll run from time to time and and my wife is is a bit slower than I am. So if we go out for an easy run and we're like, we're at 10 and a half to like 11, like 11, or let's just say like 11 to 11 and a half is where where she kind of lives in that world. That feels like a three to me. Like what you were describing, the three, like I could do that all day long, every, all day, every day. I could do that pace. 
that seems like a three. So if I'm, if me personally, I'm in the eight and a halfs, that's kind of my gray zone. 11 and a half is my three. It's interesting that it is that much slower. Yeah. And I was, I actually did a podcast episode with my sister because she had this revelation as well. And she was out there running slow, what she thought was slow because she was comparing herself to others. Yeah. And it wasn't until she had that epiphany that I can actually run a lot slower if I tried to run the slowest possible. And then she started to have this shift. She was like, actually, I was in this gray zone of intensity because she thought she was running slow. But by the end, she was huffing and puffing. Her legs were heavy. She was really having a bad time and started really enjoying running and seeing better performances once she made that shift. There's a worry. Yeah, it's it's fast. That's a great that's a great story of of your sister making that shift and realizing that. I think we all worry, Brody. It's like, well, if I run slower on my easy days, am I really working out? Like, am I am I wasting my time if I'm going that slow? And I don't want people judging me on Strava, but but there is there's there's a benefit to that health wise, even though your heart rate is not as high. And you're not putting as much of a load on your legs, right? Yeah, exactly. And you're going to see that carryover into those efforts where you do have to perform. And it is going to be harder. And the heart rate is going to elevate those short intervals or those time trials or hill repeats, those sort of sessions that you include. But I will say as well, the RPE, the intensity isn't pace. It's nice to have pace as yeah. a reference point. Okay. It's nice to have it as general guidelines, but there might be some days where it's warm outside, you haven't slept well, you've like the your nutrition isn't really up to scratch, you're stressed, mm-hmm. or you've just had a hard workout the day before. There's a lot of variables that dictate how your perceived effort is. And it's not, um, yes, good to have uh, a pace to kind of reference, especially at the start, but you might get halfway through that run and be like, you know what, I'm feeling a lot. This is more of a struggle than I anticipated. Let me back off a little bit. Or if you're feeling super fresh, if it's a really nice weather outside, you've got this nice, cool ability to perform, you could start out at a certain pace and be like, this is really easy. Let me try it ticking it up a little bit, increasing the pace a little bit, that still might be a three. And then you, you've got that bit of leeway. So RPE is the rate of perceived effort or perceived exertion. So it's all an internal process. It's how you um, are feeling in the moment and not necessarily reflecting on speed and pace. I love that RPE thing. I do. I think I think people can put this scale in their mind and it can make sense to them. Is, is there something of value, Brody, Impossibly leaving the GPS watch behind on those easy days and just relying on that perceived effort. Everybody's got routes. They know exactly how far the route is because they've done it a million times. But maybe just on those easy days, leaving that GPS watch at home and just running that route by perceived effort. Yeah. Uh, or, well, it depends on the, the runner. Mm-hmm. Like if they're recording it on their GPS and they know they're going to um, upload that to Strava and they find themselves always trying to increase their speed a little bit because they know they're going to show their friends on Strava. If you're constantly doing that, then leave your watch at home. But uh, every runner has their different motivation levels or different accountabilities to their own data. Like I am fine trying to do my slowest 
speed possible and like checking my splits per kilometer. Yeah. But in between those kilometer splits, how am I feeling? What should I do? Like uh, I'm kind of doing both mm-hmm. yeah. and um, even showing that like you can use that data to say, oh, I ran a six and a half minute kilometer. That's really slow, but this is how I'm feeling. Like today, this is how my reflection is yeah. from pace to effort. But I do think some runners need to, if they haven't tried it before, leaving their watch at home and just internally processing what they're going through. Because if you're one to be fixated to the watch and um, almost kind of like amplifying your effort to that watch, then it's probably good to to practice without the watch so that you can, it's a skill. It's a skill right. to listen to your body and listen to your intensity levels. So yeah, that would be good to at least try and see how you feel. Um, I don't know if you had a junky car when you were growing up, Brody. Uh, you know, yeah. the one that you, you paid maybe $600 for, it ran good some of the time, but some of those warning lights would come up on the dashboard and you just paste, mm-hmm. put a piece of black electrical tape over the warning light because if you can't see it, it's not a problem. Maybe that's an idea for if you want to see the distance, you want to see that heart rate, putting that little piece of tape over the, over the split section of your watch might be the way to go. Great analogy. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that makes a lot of sense. And I hope that perceived uh, effort really makes sense in that scale of, of one, which is walking, 10, sprinting, and having 80% is what you said earlier in that lower perceived effort. That three to four number is where 80% of your mileage should be, and then 20% at those higher intensities. And I know a lot of people would probably be like, ah, I don't want to slow down because I'll get slower. But it, if you can run faster on the harder days, You'll just naturally get faster. Correct. Yep. And you're doing it in the safest way possible. Like the 80%, if 80% of your weekly mileage is low intensity, then you can increase that mileage. You can increase your weekly mileage in the safest way possible. And we know that the bigger your base is, the bigger your, your accumulation of weekly mileage, the better you are performing. And so it, it has advantages on a number of levels. All right, Brody, let's talk about cross-training for a minute. Do you find value in cross-training? Is it something that you recommend all runners incorporate to help stave off injury? Not all runners. Uh, I don't classify strength training as cross-training. I count cross-training as like sort of like a cardio alternative Mm -hmm. to running. Yeah. Um, For those who I suggest cross-training, they're usually the ones who – are constantly injured or have multiple injuries per year because of overuse. And they're one to train uh, six or seven days per week yeah. and they don't have recovery recovery days. Some people yeah. just hate recovery days. Yeah. And so I either recommend that they take that recovery day and dedicate it to complete rest or they substitute it with some other low intensity cross-training effort. So that might be cycling, elliptical, it might be like on the rower, something that's cardio, um, that works the cardiovascular system, but changes the loads on the body. Because if they are running six or seven days per week and they're getting overuse injuries, we need to do something to either increase that capacity, increase the amount of recovery, increase the rest, or just shift the loads throughout the week. And so that's when I would usually 
suggest you need cross training. Um, but yeah, everyone's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Okay, you said a dirty word there a while ago to a lot of runners. Strength Brody. training. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you knew exactly where I was going on that one. So many people hear that and they're like, oh, strength training. I don't want to do it. How important is st- strength training, Brody, to having an injury-free year of running? I've done multiple podcast episodes on this topic. Mm -hmm. I've delved into a lot of research, interviewed a lot of um, professionals about this topic and recreational runners, ultra marathon runners um, will benefit from strength training. They will increase their running performance. Again, a lot of these, uh, the advice that I give out and the advice, the science I dive into goes like against the grain of conventional thinking. It's like, well, to become a better runner, I just need to spend more time running. Right. I just need to get get better running, spend more time doing it. That way it's more specific to the task at hand. Uh, but science just doesn't show that. Science shows that strength training twice a week will improve your running economy. Running economy is enormous for um, performance, for longevity. If you want to outperform your best marathon time or if you want to get the best possible position for an ultra marathon strength training will enhance your running economy which means you are utilizing your oxygen more means you are utilizing the energy that you absorb in the best way possible therefore you're less tired at the end of the race yeah and you will carry over with those performance benefits. However, a lot of people start strength training and just do body weight exercises. They say they stick to what they're good at and say, mm-hmm. fine, I've listened to all these uh, episodes that Brody's done. <laughs> I, I see he's quite um, proficient with the evidence and I can see that it might improve my running performance. Yeah. So let me start strength training and they stick to what they're good at, which is they're lean, they're endurance athletes. So they do body weight squats, body weight lunges, body weight calf raises. They do 30 reps per set because that's what they're really good at. Yeah. However, slowly progressing to do heavier weights, mm-hmm. heavier squats, lunges, deadlifts, calf raises will outperform those who do body weight. It's almost, um, I have the, the kind of concept of having energy buckets. You have your endurance bucket, mm-hmm. you have your strength bucket, and you have your power and plyometric bucket. Yeah. And endurance athletes, they spend the whole week filling up that endurance bucket. Right. And leaving all those other buckets empty. And when they get into the gym, this is a perfect opportunity to start diversifying your energy buckets, start trying to stimulate the body into a different type of stimulus so it can start reacting and becoming more resilient. Mm -hmm. But they then go into the gym and continue filling up that that endurance bucket with body weight exercises. And it's full to the brim. It's overflowing. So there's no point in doing it. Might as well spend your time um, building up those other two energy buckets so that you can uh, become more resilient, diversify the, the muscular system in different ways. Correct me if I'm wrong, Brody. I'm just gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna speak on your behalf for a minute, if, if you don't mind, Brody. Brody is tired of telling you fuckers to strength train, okay? <laughs> he's done 50 episodes on it. He's talked to everybody about it. He's shown you the science. He's broke it down. He's done the research, but you still don't listen to him. 
Brody's tired of telling you to strength train. Listen to Brody for crying out loud. The research is there. Adding, you said two days of strength training uh, a week into your routine. And you you mentioned a couple of exercises. So, I mean, if you don't want to, you know, get swole up, um, just doing those, putting some weight and doing weighted squats, lunges, calf raises. Those were kind of, I think, the big three that, that, that you had said that are seem to be important to adding that into your repertoire squats deadlifts lunges calf raises that's as simple as it needs to be uh start off with a a weight that you can um that's still within your adaptation zone if you've never done it before you might want to start with body weight or you yeah. might want to start with really low weight yeah but once you adapt to that you then get stronger and you want to hone in around um an eight to ten rep max so mm-hmm. within your set i should say 8 to 12 rep max within yeah. your set you should be getting trying to get up to 10 and have a weight where 8 is a struggle 9 is like really hard effort you can just push out a 10 yeah maybe you could go to 11 or 12 but you stop at that 10 right and then you rest and then you do your second and third set that's the type of weight that you're eventually wanting to progress to might take a bit of time might take you know eight weeks, 12 weeks to um, adapt the body to get yeah. used to these movements, but st- still should be the goal to eventually progress that way. Uh, de- out of all those, I hear the word deadlift, and that's the scariest one for me because it, it doesn't seem like a natural movement. Where squatting, you can kind of make that make sense, and lunges, you can make that make sense, and calf raises as well. Um, if someone is a little intimidated by that word deadlift, because they see the the meatheads with the spaghetti strap tank tops doing it and yelling and screaming at the gym. Um, what are your recommendations to getting over that fear? And how important is deadlift something you can leave out, or is that something that needs to be in? But there's some ways you can do it safely. It's not crucial. Okay. I think like the the deadlifts are perfect for your back, for your hamstrings, and for your glutes. Whereas your squats are more glutes back and quads mm-hmm. so the front of your thighs whereas the it, the deadlifts would target more the back of the thighs the calves are like it's it's for your propulsion right. that's the main muscle group that you use for propulsion mm-hmm. when you run so that's a given and the car uh, the lunges or like weighted step ups or something is just like this unilateral like where we're now going against um the double leg stuff yeah. and starting to do something that looks a little bit more like running so that's why i have the the four in there if you don't like them i suggest maybe try them yeah make sure you have someone assess your technique and right. make sure you start gradually because i mainly see a lot of my runners online with this um, condition called proximal hamstring tendinopathy pretty much just like a strain of the high hamstring yeah and i constantly get them to start doing deadlifts and that uh, the advantages are, are profound but a lot of times they they go too heavy to start with and they end up with low back pain or yeah. they end up with some other issues because they've gone too heavy because their hamstring can tolerate it their injury can tolerate it but the rest of the body's still trying to catch up gotcha so that's why we need to make real care we take care into making sure we find that adaptation zone to start with and then progress to gradually i know it's hard because ego gets in the way but when you're starting these these uh strength training exercises err on the side of lighter and then once you're comfortable and you get that form down then you can start putting some 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 heavier weight on there 
Yes. And I should say as well, a lot of runners, the apprehension for a lot of runners, particularly ultra runners, is they think they're going to put on muscle mass and put on weight when they start doing some strength training because they look at the gym goers and the bodybuilders and they think that that's not a runner. That's like, I need to be lean. I need to be um, as light as possible to help my running performance. And that is the case, but you won't, you might put on a pound or two of muscle mass Mm -hmm. if your body needs it, but keep in mind that those who are in the gym to put on muscle mass, they are training extremely different. They're training five, six, seven days per week, lifting weights. They're eating an enormous amount of calories to Mm -hmm. try and put on that muscle mass and they're not doing any cardio. And so if you have a runner who's still running five days per week, they're still eating like a sensible amount and they're doing strength training twice per week, you will get the performance benefits that carry over without converting into this gym goer body you'll stay lean because this body the body has this interference effect where it prioritizes um, adapting as a endurance athlete or cardio will adapt to cardio over strength training if you can if you do both within the given week and so you'll stay lean you might put on a few pounds of muscle mass if your body requires it and you'll get the performance benefits Okay, before we get into another piece of serious uh, injury prevention, one thing I've known about Australians as a whole, you guys have the best slang. You really do. <laughs> no one can touch Australian slang, whether it's calling a liquor store a bottle-o, which I think is the best ever. Yeah, what, familiar, yes. So for the, for the, we, we call the big muscular guys that work out of the gym uh, meatheads. Throw the weights and, and grunt and all that stuff. Is there an Australian term for those for those folks? Meatheads. Uh, I think we call them meatheads, but we just mainly make a, an American reference. Um, <laughs> I, I think like gym goers. What else will we say? Jimmy's. No, I, <laughs> Jimmy Jimmy's <laughs> we do like to just cut a word in half and keep it super simple. And I don't know. For some reason, we put A's and O's at the end of everything, like a bottle O or a servo. But oh, that's a um, Mito over there. Look at that Mito. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Maybe I need to come up with something. I think you could start it. You could sell shirts. It'd be great. You could get your, your retirement ready, Brody. So, again, perceived effort. That's important. Running 80% of your miles easy in that three to four perceived effort zone, 20% of your miles each week hard in a hard effort. Also doing that strength training twice a week, starting with light weights, moving yourself up as you as you progress and get more comfortable with those those movements. All right, we're gonna get controversial here, Brody. Get ready. I don't know if your if your inbox is ready or not. Stretching. People, there are stretch people. <laughs> there are not stretch people. There are stretch people before the workout people. There are stretch after the workout people. What has your research shown you about stretching and its benefits to prevent injury? Um, Okay. So uh, I'm well-versed on the research. I haven't really told many people about this, but I'm currently writing a book about running smarter. And I've just spent the last four days writing this chapter on stretching. So I'm I'm very updated. (laughs) This is why I had you on Brody. I knew it would be good answers coming from you. My, the research will show that stretching is beneficial, can be beneficial for performance 
if that performance involves some sort of highly dynamic sprint work, change in directions, jump, landing, takeoff, those sort of things, it may be beneficial. However, the research will show that for recreational runners, that carryover benefit just doesn't exist. And when we look at the running action, when we look at runners, they don't put themselves through extreme ranges of movement. Yeah, They're not dancers. They're not gymnasts. We don't require a lot of preparation to put our joints through the mechanics that it needs to run. Mm-hmm. And running specifically, there's some good science to show if you have a stretching group compared to a control group, or if you have a whole bunch of runners stretch and then the next week they don't stretch and then they put them through a 3K time trial, a 10K time trial, they just there's just no benefits. There's no carryover in performance, nor is there a carryover of or a reduction in injury risk. And so you're probably thinking, what's the use? But like you said, there's a lot of runners that stretch and feel amazing when they stretch. Mm-hmm. And so there is my advice, my takeaway is First of all, there are a very few runners who have very rigid joints that mm. might require stretching and mobility work too, uh, unless if they don't do anything, they alter their running mechanics. It's a very, very few percentage of the population, of the running population that require like hip mobility or ankle mobility in order to have a, a fluent running biomechanic kind of analysis. But I suggest to runners try a whole bunch of different things. Try stretching for five minutes. Try a yoga kind of routine. Try a quick, brief stretching here or there. And also try no stretching at all and see how you feel. And if there's no difference between any of your little experiments, then it's probably less beneficial for you performance-wise because we know that it doesn't, the science will show that it doesn't impact performance. We know that it doesn't reduce your risk of injury. But if it makes you feel really good, then you can probably still keep it in there. And so try a whole bunch of different things, see how you go. And like, say for me, I know that if I want to do some faster efforts, if I want to do some shorter interval stuff, Mm -hmm. I like to open up my hips and sort of mobilize my ankles and kind of free my, my muscles up a little bit. But if I have a really easy run ahead of me, sometimes my warm up is just warming up just jogging on the spot or just starting my run slowly and then just slowly easing into the the speed that I'm ready for. And just because I've tried a whole bunch of different experiments and have, haven't found much of a difference when it comes to easy running. Okay. So that's the shortest chapter of your book. (laughs) Yeah. Although I do dive into a lot of science. (laughs) Um, Okay. Last thing as we, this is a lot, this has been a lot folks. Um, I hope you've been keeping notes. And again, if you haven't, you can just listen to the episode again. Um, As far as running, uh, form is concerned. I know there's there's really a lot of schools of thought on that, and there are people that think you know wider toe box, um, no heel drop leads to a natural gait, and there's people that spend a lot of time uh, and effort trying to modify their natural stride to be more of a midfoot striker because that like real trendy for a while was that midfoot strike. Is 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 there something to that? Is there is there a running stride that is better for reducing injury than others or is the way that your body you know is is the the stride mother nature gave you the best way you can just go about preventing injury 
Yes, there's a lot of science around. There's a lot of publications to show whether there is a risk, if there is a correlation between running performance or running technique and your risk of injury. Yeah. Your foot strike, there's no correlation. So your if you if you're a heel striker, if you're a midfoot or forefoot striker, no correlation to risk of injury. But there are some performance there are some other aspects of the running mechanics that may increase your likelihood of injury. And the one of them is your overstride. If you are one to overstride, mm-hmm. which is when you very first make contact with the ground, how far in front of your body is that compared mm-hmm. to your center of mass or where right. your hips are located? Yeah. How far in front is that? Because that will produce an unnecessary breaking force, which generates through your knees and through your hips. It's like trying to um, drive and hit the accelerator, but you've got the handbrake on as well. Gotcha. It's like just putting this brake on mm-hmm. and it's really inefficient. You're generating unnecessary loads. And so that can be really um, detrimental for runners and especially around the knees, especially around the hips. So for runners who do have an overstride, um, best to correct that. And you best correct that usually with increasing your running cadence. Mm-hmm. So your cadence is how many steps you take per minute. Strava will calculate it. A lot of like the Garmin's and everything will um, accurately interpret how um, what your cadence is. So how many steps you take per minute. Um, irrelevant of speed. It's just due to how fast you're ticking over the legs. Yep, yep. So usually with if you're running fast, if you're running slow, your cadence generally hovers around the same. Uh, if you are an overstrider, your cadence is usually quite low because you have time to reach forward and then circle all the way to the back Mm -hmm. and you sort of take these large steps. Whereas if you correct that, you, you simply and you try and increase your cadence, you simply don't have enough time to reach out in front of you. So that the the seesaw kind of just corrects the two. So there's overstride. Mm -hmm. There's also how um how high your toes are pointing up in the air at okay. impact. So if you you are a heel striker and you contact the ground, keep an eye on how high up the toes are towards the sky mm-hmm. because if they are quite high towards the sky, that can be um, the research has shown there is a slight correlation to injury. And the third one is your step width. And not many people look at a runner from behind. They're usually used to analyzing a runner from the side. But if you go from the front or from the behind, you can have a look at how they're running with their step width. And I like to say, like most people can visualize if someone's on a treadmill and imagine there is a painted line straight down the middle of that belt Yep. where your feet are landing in relation to that straight line. Is it directly in the middle of that line? Because that would be a narrow step width. Mm-hmm. And so people are kind of um, tandem walking. Yeah. Um, some people also have a crossover step width, so their right foot impacts the left side of that line huh. and crosses over to the other side, whereas others are a little bit more wider. And so if you do have a narrow or crossover step width, less efficient, um, usually with a lower cadence as well, and it can lead to or can be a correlation with injury. However, I should say, if anyone elicits these traits, the overstride, the toes up or the crossover, they can still get away with running and not being injured if their training is really regimented and they progress really 
diligently, very mm-hmm. slowly because your body gets used to your own um, running mechanics. It just adapts to what you do. Yeah. And we've seen, we've seen so many weird, wacky kind of actions, weird running actions. And some people just don't break down because their training and their recovery is just um, enough. But if there is a little tick in doing too much too soon and you do elicit this um, overstride or you do have these toes up or this crossover step with, then that's going to increase your likelihood of injury. So that's where we need to weigh up. There's no absolutes in this. There's, ab- there's absolutely no absolutes, <laughs> but um, it, it all bases on and tailoring to the individual and what injury they have if they are injured. Well, the one uh, common thread through all of these episodes, Brody, have been everyone is an experiment of one. You know, and, Correct. and what works for some folks don't work for others. And I, I do think you, what you said about embracing your natural stride. And if you train responsibly, your body will adapt to that. I wonder how many people get injured by trying to, you know, keep up their current load of running and, and trying to adapt a new running style. And your body's like, I don't even know what you're doing. Mm. Yep, correct. Abrupt abrupt changes in training, like any sort of abrupt shift. There might be mileage, there might be speed, there might be terrain, but it also might be changes in running mechanics or changes in biomechanics. I've seen a lot of people go from transitioning from a heel strike to a forefoot strike. And they just get calf strains and Achilles tendonopathies mm-hmm. and plantar fasciitis just because the body just hasn't adapted to that change in load. Because when you go from a heel strike to a forefoot strike, dramatically shifts the demands of certain muscle groups. Brody Sharp. He's the author of the soon-to-be-released book, The Run Smarter <laughs> Book. That's When is that coming out, Brody? When can we expect to see that? You said soon-to-be-released. I have no idea how long it'll actually take. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about um, four months in, and I'm probably about halfway through. Okay, so, so the not-soon-to-be-released Run Smarter <laughs> Book, but we'll make sure everybody knows when that book comes out. Brody, you'll have to come on <laughs> when your book is ready to go, and uh, we can talk about your book. But he's the host of the Run Smarter Podcast. You can find that right now. There's episodes available, and you can listen to all 50 episodes where Brody gets more and more annoyed by trying to tell you that you need to do strength training, <laughs> but you just obviously aren't listening. You can hear the hear it, hear the strain in his voice. Um, he's also uh, the man behind the Run Smarter Physiotherapy Clinic. Brody, you gave us a lot of information, and I hope folks uh, use that information to have their best year of running ever, and, and some folks can enjoy an injury-free 2022. Adventurejogger.com, back episodes, T-shirts, other things. Check it out. Thanks for listening, everybody. We are 100% listener supported. You can make a monthly pledge on our Patreon page. Just search the Adventure Jogger on Patreon or go to theadventurejogger.com. Join the community on Facebook and Instagram by searching The Adventure Jogger. And subscribe to The Adventure Jogger wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode.